this evening marks the uh, end of 48 hours, oh, two full days that we've been here. Some were here earlier, uh, staying, waiting for the retreat, were able to arrive early. So there's only six full days left. <laughs> only. So do you feel the urgency? Rather than, oh my God, six more days. So how are you doing? Checking in with yourself, taking the, uh, your pulse, your temperature, <clears throat> how it's going. Had our first interviews today. Uh, had a chance to talk with Adenamaro, but <clears throat> people are uh, have good questions, I found, and uh, some no, no questions at all, but uh, inquiring into, which is good to uh, help with uh, get clarity about what we're doing here, what it is, confusion. Some of you are new to this uh, tradition or particular style of retreat. <clears throat> Some of you sitting here have never seen a long-haired um, uh, non-monastic sitting next to a no-haired monastic. This is the third time, and we haven't had any criticism to stop it so far, so I think we're good to go right now. They said the the other night that it's a, a great delight for me to be here and an honor, truly an honor, and to sit uh, in this seat in a place of, of honor and respect. And I don't take that lightly, it's very important. And I said to uh, someone that, in fact it was last, uh, two years ago when I got, uh, it was here for the EM and Ajahn Amaro and I uh, talked. It's the International Elders Committee, that they are an international elders meeting that they have every two or three years. It's held here at Namawati uh, this time last, uh, 2014. And I was receiving an invitation to actually go to Thailand, and so my wife and I traveled there. It was a great honor. And so uh, after all these years of being a part of the monastic uh, community, in robes and then out of robes, uh, it was like the community was in 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 my own in my own heart really, being kind of lifted up, and as a as a monk, uh, as a nun, as a monastic one who has gone forth, the rules of discipline uh, that they have, that there's a community support for that high level of integrity of impeccability. So I felt quite. Um, uh, lifted into that, but I felt that my impeccability had to be even greater because I don't have a community around me. I don't have a, uh, uh, I have a lovely wife who's very supportive and some friends, but in the world I'm not surrounded by a community that their whole intention in life and the people that come here is to, to lift their hearts up into something good and noble and to seek that, to find out and inquire and uh, uh, get closer to it. And I believe that's why uh, that brings us all here is uh, the seeking meaning, seeking to elevate ourselves into uh, a, 
more uh, a place that we can honestly feel good about, to feel the uh, the uh, the uplifting of the of the heart. And as we look around in our world today, or the uh, certainly in the uh, uh, the busyness and the chaos and the violence and all of the things that uh, are quite deeply concerning that e even more so do we need a place of spiritual refuge, a place that we can feel good about uh, our lives, what we do, and how we live our lives. So this evening um, has the potential, had the potential to make me quite uh, anxious or nervous. And the reason is that uh, I learned from, uh, or all of us really learned from uh, Ajahn Chah in the early days to really speak from the heart to the, the spontaneity, uh, the spontaneity of the moment. And I still uh, strongly adhere to that. And so for me to go outside of those parameters is a little bit of a stretch. And so Venerable Ajahn Amro, in his encouragement and prolific uh, knowledge of uh, scriptures and uh, his embraces and uh, expounds that with ease, I was saying, well, you know, maybe I'd like to look at a couple of these things, or I had you know, been looking at some of the suttas and things for this particular retreat. And I said, but I almost feel like I'm, I'm being untrue to this tradition if I bring any kind of notes or references. And he kind of looks at me like, you know, how you can do. And uh, he, <laughs> he can't see that, and then, you know, when he gives you that look. <clears throat> But uh, was very supportive of that, and so if I think it's absolutely fine to read a uh, uh, something that find meaningful, and so this evening I, I've set a kind of a high bar for myself, and uh, that when with that high bar, there's 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 a lot of material, or uh, material and basis for. Uh, that I want to attempt, and with the, the noblest of intentions, to weave together so that it will be uh, meaningful for, for you. And so that's my intention. Uh, maybe go out on a, on a limb a little bit, and I'm happy to do that. If it creaks or breaks, and I assume that we'll be fine with that, that we have a few doctors in the crowd, and ambulances are ready, and so if I fall off the seat, hurt myself, or whatever, or mess it up, I know that uh, everybody will hold the intention that my intention is good, that my heart is as pure as I can hold in this moment, and that uh, my wish is to, to share uh, something of depth and meaning. I'd like to begin with uh, the, uh, the, the theme that we have which is uh, the uh, seamless well-being, protecting the world through sila. And when I, uh, when Ajahn Armour and I uh, met just when I got here, they said, well, it'd be really lovely, I think, I, I came up with the idea uh, to uh, weave the actual, the precepts into uh, the, uh, uh, the talks. And so I thought, well, why don't we take a precept a night and I called it UPS, which maybe people don't have too much. It's United Parcel Service. 
but I was too lazy and tired to write it down before I came, so I had to get some kind of acronym so that I remember what my intention was so that I would re would re recall what it is that I thought was important. So UPS, in this sense, was unpacking the sila. So I wanted to unpack the sila. Acronyms are useful sometimes, so maybe there's a few too many, but I like that. So I thought it was quite glad, and it worked. You know, I just kind of put it down. I was too tired to even write a note, let alone get on the computer and do anything. So what we're, we're, we're going to do is that we're starting this evening uh, with the first precept uh, on uh, nonviolence, not harm, not killing. And then each day we will uh, alter the, uh, the precept as uh, Ajahn Amaral gives an evening, I give an evening, go through all five precepts. And I think it will unfold in a beautiful way that they will be interrelated in many ways. And uh, I certainly hope that it will be helpful to understand more deeply because these are, uh, these are principles or standards of living that we keep so that we uh, feel good about ourselves and about our life, which uh, ties into Hirieno Tapa. And Ajahn Kongrit, the, uh, the senior Thai monk here, just before the evening started, I realized, oh, I have to go ask him, because I remember the Thai, the first Thai for Hiri, what that means, and then the second, I couldn't remember, so I went over, tried to find Ajahn Kongrit. I couldn't find him, because I said, Otapa, I wanted to get the Thai translation, or uh, and and I didn't see him. I said, oh, it'll be fine. So just as I was coming down before coming in the hall, he was walking up. So you know how these things happen sometimes. I went up, oh, John, John, can I bother you for a simple question? So I, I asked him, and so he told me. And I, I, I wanted that because Thai is so uh, beautiful in its simplicity sometimes in that it is a language. It was described once by... Uh, Nagasena, who translated in the early days an Indian bhikkhu, a lot of uh, Venerable Buddha Dasa's uh, works. And in the translation, I remember, and I, one of those few things that I, well, one of the things I memorize, I memorize a lot of things, but uh, it went, he said in, in the translation, talking about from the Thai to the English, he says, Thai is a language uh, of the heart uh, based, on, based on feeling with an undercurrent of warm expression. So it's a language based on feeling with an undercurrent of warm expression then on, which is hard to express in English or find in English. And, um, and I think there's truth in that. And so this language of the heart, and it also, many words in Thai come from actually from Pali. So Dhamma or Dharma is kind of more uh, maybe popular in, in, in a larger sense. In Thai, just becomes tam. Buddha becomes put, and Sangha becomes song, but the same exact words. So it's just put tam song. And uh, kama or karma is gum, like G U M. Uh, nibbana is nipan. So all these words are, are, there's not a Thai, it's not like a Thai translation for nibbana or nirvana. It is the Thai word. So the word. Is 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 integrated and woven into the fabric of the uh, of the people, so that they grow up and are are steeped in this language and these teachings of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which is very very beautiful.
I thought to begin and try to uh, keep it. I don't said it was all right to go till midnight, so I hope everybody is good with that. If we, <laughs> or no, I'm sorry, no, or oh, ten o'clock. He just, he just says, whatever the Ajahn wants, he said. <laughs> um, the the Hiriyotapat, and reflecting on my life, and I, I like to share some very personal stories, and, and on this, in, in, re, in reflecting about it, I believe in, in as, as much as I can manifest belief and with uh, a certain... Uh, common sense that we bring into uh, you know, Buddhist teaching because we don't just believe for believing's sake, but our belief is reinforced by experience, isn't it? So as we dig deeper and, ex and experience and understand more in these teachings, then our belief is, is actually is, is deepened and firmed up. And so it's a confidence, a trust, an interest, a lot of different words that we can use, but really is... is and oftentimes Buddhists are afraid to say, what do you believe in? Well, Buddhists say, you know, they kind of, well, they don't really talk about belief. But I find it's a very powerful thing to say that what I believe in, meaning that I don't know this absolutely uh, for sure without any, like I scienti have scientific proof where the Buddha descended from wherever Buddhas abide that's certainly not out there, but in, within us, and, 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 and uh, you know, gave me the transmission that said, well, that's right. Uh, but that in our hearts we have a, a sense of things through this, uh, this practice and we deepen that through an element of confidence, trust, faith, to practice, to be here, to continually uh, move forward on this, uh, this, this, this path towards our awakening, towards uh, waking up, really. So in, in this recollection of my life, thinking back, that I realized that I've had, I had an awareness, and this is what I wish to put forth for all of your reflection, first and foremost, is that we have, this is an inherent quality. It's like in our DNA, hiriotapa. So I think back to childhood, and most incidents, other than when, than when I drank, which I didn't do for a lot, but when I did, I did it fairly ambitiously, uh, mostly in the military, but you're young and stupid and foolish, and you can brag about, you know, you got high, you got drunk, you did whatever, and you boasted about how drunk you were, and just really seems quite silly now, doesn't it, <laughs> when we think about that, like New Year's Eve, everybody gets, uh, you know, snot puke and drunk. And, and, you know, for what? To bring in the new year? Well, I don't even know what time the new year came in, and then you have a headache the next day, and it's just kind of so much uh, kind of craziness. But other than that, I've never been violent, other than my military experience, which I hope I can weave in here, that everything, all through my life, that I kind of uh, w was repelled by anything violent. And when I was younger, of course, I was an average size. But as I got grew and got bigger, then, of course, people like to challenge. Little guys usually like to challenge the big guys, don't they? They have to prove themselves. Big guys kind of, sometimes big guys are just kind of big softies and want to go their own way. And, but they're always being challenged. And at least that's what I found. Or, or the intimidation of one's peers is to prove yourself. 
So I was never comfortable with that. I never, I never inclined towards that. The only reason I did is because of the embarrassment of peer group, isn't it? So we can do some pretty stupid things when we go along with the crowd, you know, especially carousing and drinking and so on. But I think of different incidents, like my, I grew up hunting and fishing. My father uh, loved to hunt in the outdoors and fish, and so he brought me up, trained me how to use guns and, and shoot, and, and we went uh, pheasant hunting, uh, which is a, a big thing in, in Washington State, and then dove hunting, these little innocent doves, smaller than these here. So I remember learning to hold the gun and to, to do what my father was training me to do, and I remember one time that we shot, and these doves are the sweetest little creatures, really. These are, these are sweet doves. These are kind of like doves on steroids here at, uh, at Amrawati. They're like real, they're you know, big, healthy doves. The ones there were, were small. And the only thing that you ate was the breast. You know, they had a little breast. And my father couldn't even eat them because they, you know, upset his stomach. But we'd go out, and, and you'd shoot so much at these, at these things that your arm would get, get sore. And my father and his friends, they were all hunters and things and, and had no qualms about, uh, you know, shooting. And I'd see them, like, sometimes you'd just wing a dove, <clears throat> and so it wouldn't be dead. So you had to go over there and get the dove, and this sweet little dove is looking, at, looking up at you, and you have to then take it and whack its head on the butt of the shotgun, on the uh, shoulder pad of the shotgun. And I did that, because that's what I was supposed to do. But I think back, I still have the innocence of this dove in my mind and the feeling that I didn't really want to do that, that my heart was not in that. And that the conditioning that we can grow up with can take us out of our well-established, heartfelt sense of Hiriotapa. So Hiriotapa, as Ajahn uh, Kongrit has said, he says it's the first part here he is Kwamlaai Tobap, and the second is Kwam Klua Tobap. So the first is is a is um, an embarrassment of doing uh, bad things or things that are wrong. The second is a fear of doing uh, things that are wrong. Uh, Tanisaro sometimes, and I like it, Nadja and I talked about this, it's it, kind of consciousness, like being conscious or being having self-respect and the fear of consequences. So the second part, Otapad, is the fear, but they're really inseparable. If you, have, if you have one, you have to have the other. They go together because the healthy kind of uh, 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 fear of doing something that is unskillful, that's harmful, and then the results of that, we, we, they come together, so, and, and they're, they're reinforced. So these are, they're like protectors, aren't they? They're like guardians of the essence of our hearts, of our goodness and well-being. And I truly believe that those are inherent in us, and if they're not, that they get somehow they get obscured or trained out, that they, they uh, through conditioning, and through uh, you know, karmic results that is hard to know, that you know, things we may have done in, a, in, uh, in the past, if uh, you're open to embracing that possibility, uh, we can't know. 
But everything I look at in my life, I remember uh, when I was uh, flying, learning to fly helicopters and we went out in, down in, in Texas where the flight school was, or the initial flight school, and we went out drinking. And we got into some, some of course, we were not from up from the South, and the South kind of have a, a certain <laughs> attitude like the North has an attitude and, and the two shall never meet kind of thing. But I remember that somebody was giving me a hard time. I remember it distinctly, but it was like I had to prove myself. So I really, I went out and I started, you know, I knocked this guy down and I started kicking him. I mean, this guy's on the ground and I'm like kicking him. And because I was drinking, one, and be two, that was like what I was supposed to do. And the last thing I remember is that we got to get out of here and we were gone. But the consequences of those actions are still with me, aren't they? The consequences of any of our actions uh, that we remember, and it's in the remembering that we can learn from and hopefully uh, what the lesson was or, or that, 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 that unskillfulness. So I'm very grateful that this is, was, is, is inherent in me and the only time is when I was intoxicated, when I would lose my better sense. And I think that's a great, uh, the fifth precept will be the last that we'll cover, but one of the things that, that I say with whether it's drug or drink that leads to carelessness or heedlessness. And so that's certainly been the case for me. So I'm uh, you know, deeply uh, proud, not in an arrogant way, that since leaving monastic life that I haven't uh, picked up any uh, drug or drink. And I never was in recovery, but I certainly uh, love to indulge. Vietnam, you either got drunk or you got high. It was kind of two things. Most there was nobody that wasn't doing something. And part of it was numbing out process and, and, and other things. So coming to Vietnam, and this ties in, perhaps the first, uh, it does tie in the first precept and this sense that, that I had. So my military uh, history goes to uh, back to when I was 19. I did what they call in the States junior college. I'm not sure what it's, it's called here, but it's kind of a precursor to a, uh, a regular university. Uh, for maybe a year or two to get credits and things. So I did it for a very brief time, but I just, my heart wasn't into studying. I didn't like it. I barely made it out of the American high school system. And I just was not uh, a book learner at that time and didn't uh, think I ever would be. And because of the draft in the Vietnam uh, War, that if you were unattached uh, to, to anything, that you were just kind of uh, a... Uh, you were in school, you didn't have any kind of deferment, then basically you were going to be drafted. And of course, uh, some of you may be a little younger than remember this, but those, a lot of us here will, is that guys were doing, it was the first war really in, this, in the States that people were actually starting to question the government, the involvement, what is this was about. And I remember first hearing it when I was maybe 16 or 17, and then, well, what about Vietnam and this, and should we be there or not? And I didn't really have any interest. I didn't really think about it. I wasn't, I, I wasn't wired at the time to do that. So when it came time to serve, I thought, well, somebody has to serve. So I, I voluntarily went into the military. 
And once you get in, there's all sorts of opportunities uh, if you look for them. And I had wanted to fly helicopters. And because of that, I, I had a, actually a childhood uh, friend that we you know, grew up arm in arm, best buddies and that, and the families were close and everything. And he'd went to Vietnam and flown helicopters. And so when he came back, you know, he had all of his army gear and his pilot's helmet and this. And he'd really changed. I mean, he could really feel that this young man had gone through something uh, that uh, I, really, I was curious about. And I thought, oh, I really felt pulled towards that. So I, I enlisted, and I kind of went in a roundabout way. I was able to get a commission uh, as a, a second lieutenant. And um, then it was during that period that I, so I didn't initially qual qualify for flight school. So that was like six months. And then he did six months of training as an officer. Then I qualified for flight school, which was another nine months. So by the time I was ready to go to Vietnam, I was, had about two and a half years of training So before I uh, set foot in Vietnam. And what's interesting at that time for rotary wings, you have fixed wing, which is uh, regular aircraft, and you had rotary wing, which is what it says, rotary or helicopters, choppers. And of course, the, the demand was for uh, helicopter pilots. So when you received orders for for for, via, for a flight school, especially rotoring, it was it was uh, uh, rotoring flight school, TDY en route Vietnam. So which translates as, your orders are to go to rotary ring, become a pilot, temporary duty on the way to Vietnam. So it was like in, it was clear that's where you were going. You were volunteering, in fact. And I didn't really think about that that much. So you go through this training and how to fly a helicopter and all these kind of different tactics and uh, escape and evade if you get shot down and you know, a lot of uh, fairly significant training for, for uh, uh, nine months. And then you have maybe 30 days to hang out with your family or do whatever you want, and then off you go. When I arrived in Vietnam, I told this story before, they, uh, there was a lot of French, the French had been there before the Americans, and there were a lot of French kind of buildings that they had made. And so on this particular base camp, there was this French building, and uh, it was a headquarters. So you go in there and you report in to your uh, commanding officer. And on the wall, in this little uh, building, this headquarters building, there was a black chalkboard, you know, the old chalkboard with the white chalk. And it had the letters KIA, and then it had, you know, that you do the one, two, three, four, and then five, you cross over to, to count sometimes, like a Roman numeral, I'm not sure what it's called. But KIA meant killed in action. There were three, if I remember right, three check marks, three lines. And I instinctively knew it was pilots. I don't know how I know, I just know. And so my world up to that point just kind of, it, the ground literally fell out from under me. Um, it was a brief moment, but it was like a vertigo. I mean, it just, everything dropped out. And I just, you know, almost like a, 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 an anxiety attack. And it wasn't until that point that I actually knew that, that I was in a combat zone that people were dying and pilots were dying. I was a pilot, so my mortality just kind of full on rushed at me. 
not the first time in life, but it happened younger, but kind of went dormant before Vietnam. So fast forwarding, you do what you do. The unit I was in was uh, called the uh, first of the night. Some of you may have seen Apocalypse Now. It was actually the unit with um, uh, Martin Sheen was in it and uh, some others, but these guys with the cav hats used to fly, ride horses in the old days, and now the horses they exchanged for helicopters, so it was called the Air Cavalry. And so our mission was basically to go out and, and uh, what they called a hunter-killer team, to go out and get bad guys. And so the name of the game was body count. That was it. Even though you're supposed to go out and look for uh, enemy activity, for ammo, for trail movement. So it was you know, reconnaissance. But the name of the game, oh, everything was pushed to go out and get body count. Get a body count. That was the name of the game. And it was, so we flew, if you can imagine, at treetop levels. I'm looking out here at a tree across there that's waving in the wind. It's probably... Uh, 80, 90, 100 foot tree. And in Vietnam, you could get like a triple canopy jungle. But basically, we, 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 our skids kind of scraped to the, for the foliage because we were right there flying slow and slow because that's the only way you could uh, find things and look things. And then we had a gunship above us that kind of was our cover. So all, all, the, all the focus was on the ground looking for, for bad guys. And so the pilot, the doors were off the helicopter, so I was the pilot, and right behind me was the crew chief with an M60 machine gun, grenades, um, other kind of fun things that maim and, and uh, destroy human life and foliage and all the rest of it. So one day we were out, and we were in what they call a free fire zone. So in a free fire zone, it meant that there was anybody that was there wasn't supposed to be there, and we had full uh, authority to engage. And I'd never you know, engaged in that way. I hadn't been flying this particular type of helicopter for very long. Uh, but we were in this uh, area, we called it AO, area of operation, doing our, you do right-hand turns. And all of a sudden, the, the uh, uh, crew chief, who had more experience than me as far as being the gun, and he said, and forgive me, but I'll just say it like it is, he said, well, there's a gook down there, and I, hurts me to say that word, but when you make the enemy less than, or you use a derogatory term, then they're easier to make other, and they're easier to kill. So if you make them other, you give them a derogatory name, or the bad guys, or all sorts of uh, words. And this... Viet Cong soldier was standing in the bushes, and he was standing like this. Standing up, he wasn't any threat whatsoever. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. We had permission to fire, and my reaction was just, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. So I gave the order to shoot. And we're not talking very high and very far away, so it's like a turkey shoot, really. And so he unleashed the, uh, you press his trigger and rounds start coming out faster than you can count in a machine gun. So he basically killed him, mowed him down. When I first ordained and went to Thailand, I used to go over this incident, even when I came here. In fact, uh, there's a film they did called Alms Bowls to Newcastle. And 
I used to go over that incident in my mind over and over and ask for forgiveness and take full responsibility for it. And I don't know uh, how the, uh, the kind of the more refined aspect of how karma works and vipaka karma, which is the resultant of karma, one's actions. But to this day, I still, I have remorse about that event, but my heart holds it in a, in a place that the only reason I did that, it's kind of like when I was drinking, that I was supposed, if I was drinking, I had to prove myself. If you're a soldier, you're trained to do a certain thing. And there's been all sorts of stories that soldiers have been trained, uh, and, and, and I know some of you may have read these, where they actually, uh, they had to really discipline soldiers because they would tend to not, they'd fire over each other's head. They wouldn't really want to kill each other. And so for the, this was a problem, of course, <laughs> for, for the commanders and those in, in power. So I know in my heart that there was intention there and there was action. I didn't hold the gun, but it was the same as I held the gun. So in law, I was a, I was a uh, um, what do they call it? A, uh, you know, if somebody's murdered, you're there just accessory by beat. Sorry? Accessory to the crime. Accessory, pipe. thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, that you're an accessory, and it's just, it's period. And I could have given the order not to shoot, but that wasn't the name of the game. So I share it because it's a very powerful moment, and probably not too many of you here have ever had a chance to shoot, and I hope you never do, uh, another human being. But it brings us to the essence, really, of this, this first precept, and that inner quality that we all have of to do good and refrain from evil. And it's, it's in our guts, it's in our DNA. So my encouragement is, is to, as, as you know, after this evening and the rest of the retreat, just this one part, if nothing else, to begin to reflect in your own life and think how hard it is for you to do something like that. I mean, we can be very angry, right? We can be mad and say, oh, I want to kill him. But very few people actually act on that, do we? And the reason we don't is because we have Hiriotapa. So otapa is the is the fear of what of the actions, and the 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 self respect comes with hiri, that we we have enough self respect, knowing that the consequences of those actions will be dire. And so we restrain ourselves, having worked with inmates a lot in in prison. That most of them lack consequential thinking. So they lack the hiriotapa. And the reason they're there is because they went against, they crossed the line. There was one, and so that, that line that is, is drawn or that kind of boundary that we have in our hearts, most of us know it. And what we have the opportunity is to get more intimate with it. Because with that, when we lie our head down at night to go to sleep, our conscience is clear. If we reflect through the day, then we know, oh, we didn't hurt anybody. We didn't intentionally take any life. 
We didn't intentionally do anything to, to uh, uh, inflict pain on a physical sense. We might have thought it, but we didn't act on it. So that's really the first step, which brings us to the, the precept. So the precept is to not, in, it, that undertaking the precept, the discipline to uh, not intentionally harm any living being. And so, and I don't have the, and, and I hope Ajahn will elaborate on a bit in the, it, over the next, uh, through the retreat, because this is a newer translation, but we're talking about a lot about intention. And they, uh, they have something that, I'm not sure in this country, they have something called involuntary manslaughter. So if I'm driving on a, on a, a back street, speed limit is, say, 25 miles an hour, obeying the law, being careful, and a child, heaven forbid, jumps out or comes out on their bike or is chasing a ball, and I hit that child and hurt them or kill them, that the driver is always at fault. By default, they're at fault. And this could be probably one of the most horrendous things next to killing somebody intentionally. And yet it always protects the law, at least in, in the States, protects the, you know, the innocent vit victim here or considers a victim. Because you're carrying, we don't think about, but I, when I get in a car, this is a lethal weapon, isn't it? The four wheels, the speed it can go, the weight it has, it's a lethal weapon. I don't know if many of you think of that, but we can be so foolish in how we drive and how we behave behind the wheel. So when we think about these things, it's like, oh, I have to be careful with this because this can really hurt somebody. So involuntary is like we didn't intend it, and yet we're responsible for those actions according to the law. We're also not, we can just, by thinking about it, think about, well, how would you feel if that something like that happened? Uh, or something happened and, like, people have survivor's guilt, like, uh, they got off the plane because they got called or they gave up their seat and then maybe the plane crashes and everybody died. And so they have survivor's guilt because they would have been on the plane, uh, they would have been dead too. It's, it's very uh, prominent uh, w with veterans, uh, survivor's guilt. Well, it should have been me. You know, I wish I would have died because the pain of living with what happened and things is so, so deep. So in regards then to panatipata, not uh, intentionally taking life, it's kind of the coarsest aspect as I see it, meaning that we don't kill each other. You know, at the very least, let's not kill each other. And, and just reflect for a moment what the world would be like if we didn't kill each other. If we just said we're not going to hurt each other anymore. We're not going to take guns or knives or weapons of any kind and kill our fellow human beings. Now just imagine how that, just that one thing would change the way the world is, especially these days, but throughout time, really. And yet there's something in the DNA as well that wants to, you know, to destroy, to harm, to uh, propagate this violence. So in order to do that, 
especially if you're a soldier or if you uh, are uh, someone who you know, violates the law and goes against through greed, through uh, anger to exploit and take advantage of, then the, the, how that happens is with intention, isn't it? So for you to do, for you and I to say or do something, there has to be an intention formed first. So whatever we say, whatever we do is always preceded by, by thought, by intention. And with that intention, that this is, this is where restraint or the ability to not act on body and speech. So the precept really begins, the precept, the course to not kill, which is if we're killing or harming, then we've already stepped outside of the boundary of Hiriopatapat, haven't we? We've already transgressed it because we're go already going against that inner place where it can be disrupted in the beginning. So if, if, if you know, men and women in combat, and men both these days, actually were taught to be conscientious, you have to train that out of them, they have to be, that has to be trained out. So in military training, you have to be trained that what you do and what you have is basically in the, at the end of the day that you are, you are an, an instrumentality of war. And to wage war is, is, is justified. So like in Vietnam, they, to the, uh, uh, you're given the license to kill. And so is murder in war any different than murdering someone on the street? Now, the government says so, the military says so, the Buddha didn't say so, Ajahn Amaro didn't say so, Lopo Sumedho, Ajahn Chah didn't say so, because it's not. It's just a, it's just a way of, there's justification because of the, of the, uh, the propagation of protection and, and you know, America's not about protecting, they're about, they're, they're the aggressors, really. And so, you know, to protect is one thing, but to, you know, be the aggressor is another. So if we reflect on intention, and this can be informed by and strengthened with Hiriyotapa, then it's more difficult to act, you know, in a violent way, to either because we can feel something, and Hiriyotapat usually keeps, prevents us from reacting. But what is our breaking point? How far do we get pushed before we would act on something to maybe protect somebody? I don't know how I would be if someone uh, you know, attacked or assaulted someone I loved, if there was a weapon involved in things. You know, my wife Catherine says she could never hurt somebody, but I almost instinctually know that I would act. I don't know that for sure, but you know I'm not going to stand by. Like when I first started studying Buddhism, they t it was just kind of was kind of silly. I don't know where it came from. And my mother, when she read it, this is before I became a monk. There was the case of a of a monk, and his I think his maybe his his mother was drowning or something. So instead of jumping in and touching his mother because that would be an offense, he takes his robe and kind of throws his robe out. So okay. that might have been the practical thing to do. But certainly, uh, the intention, if the intention is to save life, if you can, then kind of all bets are off. 
that if that keeps you from doing that, then I don't think that's the intention. Uh, uh, the, the intention is very important. So, you know, to save or, or help somebody and give somebody a lending hand. Now, when we look at a little more deeply at intention, so we say harming or, or, or killing or inflicting pain, but then if, if, if I investigate more deeply into that, then I begin to uh, realize that, that loving kindness is non-violence. It's about non-harming, the ahimsa, which is non-violence, not harming. And with that, then, I'm actually developing something deeper that I don't want to harm anything, that the life of a mosquito, the life of a fly, wretched creatures as we think they are and they bother us and you know there's flies all over the world they seem to be one of the most universal creatures flies and ants and mosquitoes and if you can have a place without flies ants and mosquitoes it's quite heavenly um, but uh, usually anywhere you go kind of find these things and so even these creatures insect world uh, whatever it is to not harm anything, that our intention then begins to be one of kindness. So the, so the discipline of a monastic, uh, you know, uh, the, the nuns and the monks, is to not intentionally harm any living thing, you know, to not inflict pain, to not kill. But that can be transgressed. I remember one time, not such a funny story, but at the time it was, and then I remember telling some of the, the monks ab about it, I was, I was very hot under the collar, but what was it wearing the collar, but I was hot under the collar, you know, the expression. And I don't remember what it was about, but I was in my kuti at Ajahn Chah's monastery. And in Thailand, you have like ants or really like mosquitoes. There's all sorts of shapes and sizes and noises. And, and you know, the worst are really the malarial ones because you can get, you have to be careful. But then you have big ones and small ones and ones, the dancing ones, you know, so they dance around your arms and your face to find the sweet spot. They'll stop here and nibble. They don't like that. It's not sweet enough. So they go to another spot and nibble a little. They go and they're trying to find this sweet spot. So if you weren't in a malarial area, then you know, I certainly made effort to just sit and be patient. Because if it did finally land, it would fill up, and then it would be, you know, because it was this motor was, it was full of blood, so it didn't have the, it didn't have the full capacity to to fly. It was very distinct. Then you knew, okay, I'm done with that one. You know, he's fed. May you be well and happy. And you know, I didn't smack you. And <laughs> very distinct, you know. And so it wasn't bad because it, you know its rotor blade, if you will, was kind of you know. It was full on, so it was like, and it would be so quiet, just buzzing around, and then that lower pitch, and you knew it was gone because it didn't go very far. It was so full, it had to go a little ways and then stop because it, it couldn't really you know, fly very far. It was full of blood. But I was in my kuti one evening, or maybe it was in the day. I don't remember, but there's ants and termites, all these kind of different biting things that are always trying to get at you and get on you, and sometimes you have to abandon your, your, your kuti, your little <coughs> cabin in the jungle, because sometimes these ants will come in and they just literally take over, and they can kind of sense, like there's wasp nests in your kuti sometimes. 
So they would be able to find these things, and so the whole troop, you know, literally hundreds of thousands probably, uh, countless, would come in, and that's what they're after. They're after they go up and burrow in and get the larvae to eat. You know, it's food for them. But they don't, they're not very sensitive that you live there. And uh, so, so they crawl on you. And, and when you wake up, you know. You feel the, the distinct biting. And there's one kind. It's called motnam. And it's got a little, it's not very big, but they're incredibly powerful as ants are. So they actually, they, they, their whole body just, they bite. And their whole body just goes down. And I mean, if one of these was ever like the size of a cat, you know, we'd be in trouble because these things are so strong and just like do us in. And, and so as soon as you felt that, you looked and you knew, and it was like, okay, you give it up to them. You know, there's no point in trying to sweep them out or do anything. You just leave and wait till the next day. They come through, eat their thing, and then on they go. This was another, this was a non-biting ant, if I remember. It was, I definitely remember. It was a kind of a big, kind of innocent ant. But I was really upset about something. And so these things were, were, were in my kuti, and they were just there doing their own thing. <laughs> and I just started smashing them. <laughs> I mean, one would come, and I'd just go, boom, yes. Another one, boom, smash another one, boom. Now, I don't feel a tremendous amount of remorse, even though I was a monk and things at the time. Uh, there certainly was intention, and you know, maybe I have an ant life or two to live after this. I don't know, <laughs> but it was—it's—it's it's to demonstrate that we can basically lose it, even as as the, the, with the best of intentions. And and I'm not saying that you know Lumpasumato or Ajanamro ever you know did such a thing, but Pabagro did, and and it wasn't one of my proudest moments, but that those creatures deserve to live as well, don't they? You know, they don't, they don't, uh, they're there. I mean, it's funny because they're there before we were. And so it's not we're in their territory, that, that they're in our territory, <laughs> we're in theirs. You know, they were there first, the trees were there first, and so on. So making peace with uh, the insect life and things, and to not harm, to not uh, uh, inflict any, any pain. So with that intention, we hold that intention that it is a protection, and the reason it's a protection, because at the end of the day that I feel uh, that I have uh, not created anything harmful, that I have any remorse about. And remorse is the big one, isn't it? And the slightest thing you can feel remorse about, like you said something to one of your friends and you were just a little bit harsh, and 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 here we call it guilt, but it's it's deeper than that. It's just not. We don't feel good about something. We know it immediately, don't we? Like I was describing, when I was a child. It's just like it's it's immediate. We know it immediately. And as I said, this just seems inherent in everyone that we have that. And so to grasp it and trust it and be with it is, has huge benefits, has huge benefits. So I'd just like to briefly share something that there's two, there's two, uh, these are regarding the precepts and I came across these and uh, 
There was, there's one called the Abhisanda Sutta, which is rewards, translated as ward, rewards, and the other is Vipaka Sutta, so results. And these are on in access to insight. And so these are well worth looking up if you have the inclination, because they're quite straightforward and simple, but very lovely. And what really struck me here was on the rewards, which ties into the, say, the, 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 the precepts and talks about these five precepts. Uh, you know, the Buddha here talks about the eight, eight rewards of merit. So it says rewards of skillfulness, nourishment of happiness, celestial resulting in happiness, leading to heaven, leading to what is desirable pleasurable and appealing to welfare and happiness. So these eight things. The first three are the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Then he goes on to talk about the five precepts. So he says, now there are these five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. Which five? There is the case where a disciple of the Noble Ones abandoning the taking of life abstains from taking life. In doing so, he gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless, limitless numbers of beings in giving freedom from danger, freedom from, <clears throat> from animosity, freedom, sorry, he gains a share of limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift, and as always, as the refrain repeats itself, and I really love this part, I think it's just so in each precept he talks, he does this, he says, it's original, it's long-standing, it's traditional, it's ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that is not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and is unfaltered by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. And so in that, there's this, that I just found this reinforcement of like, well, why should I keep a precept in the first place? But when you listen to the antiquity and coming from an enlightened being, if we're trust that the, the suttas are the, the word of the Buddha. There's certainly wisdom in it, whoever said them. But that's very powerful to think about that these have antiquity, that they're ancient, that they haven't been corrupted or un, they're unadulterated and never will be, can't be, to, to abide and, and uh, to live these things in our, in our lives. So for me, that really reinforces like, wow, yes. And that's why I believe that we all feel in our, in our hearts. So on the opposite side, I'll just share the vipaka, which is results. So we talk about uh, vipaka kamma. So kamma is action, cause and effect. And there's a resultant kamma. We, we call, it's called vipaka kamma. So this is the... This is the results and the opposite. So, monks, the taking of life, when indulged in, developed and pursued, is something that leads to hell, leads to rebirth as a common animal, leads to the realm of the hungry, hungry shades, 
the slightest of all the results coming from the taking of life is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to a short lifespan. Now, this is not a belief, but it's a reflection, isn't it, to, to think. And if you have, I know when I have, I have those feelings. I don't feel good. My mind drops into a hellish, unpleasant state, doesn't it? When we've done something wrong, then the results are very immediate. And when you're a bhikkhu and uh, you know, a, a monastic, there are rules of discipline. You don't have to do something very uh, major to like, you can't sleep, so you have to, you know, Ajahn Chah would talk about this, that night or before you went to bed, you had to go over and find you know, your, your, your brother monk and tell them what had happened. And not a major thing, you know, just some transgression, because you couldn't sleep. Now that might be a little extreme, uh, or we might see it as a little extreme, but the point being that our, that our consciousness is bothered by something, and so we have each other. And so in the world we have each other as well, but it's even more important to have our own island of support and well-being because it's so easy to transgress because nobody is going to say anything, you know, generally in the crowd. So if people you, you, you associate with in your life and things, if, if they reinforce this or don't say something, then, then I certainly question, well, what is that? What is, that fri- is that a true friendship? Because to me, is a, a true friend is someone who is a Kalyanamitta, isn't it? Someone who is, is noble and has your best interest in mind, even if they, they, they're willing to risk the friendship because they're concerned about you and, and what you might be doing. So we, and, and sure, we all have friends like that. And so you don't have like um, gallons and gallons of them. You have you know, a handful, and that's all you really need, someone you trusted. Uh, and one, uh, well, several, a lot are here this evening, but I want to acknowledge my uh, old dear friend, not old, but long-standing rather than old, uh, Ajahn Santachito, Stephen Sasmal. And he was one of the best sounding boards, even though we didn't always like see eye to eye, and you could say we were kind of like oil and water. But I always knew that he would give me a perspective that would be that I valued. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really. I, I knew that, so there was reluctance and reticence to do that. But I knew it was good because he would give me a perspective that I probably needed to to see or learn. And to me, that's a true friend. And and I have that with with. Uh, you know, many people, especially monastic, but many non-monastics as well. And so that's precious, isn't it? That's priceless. We can't put a, you can't put a monetary value on that. Well, it's only 9.37, and I think I'm about to wrap this up. So thank you for your intention, and I hope, as I said at the beginning, that I uh, kind of orchestrated all this in a way that uh, uh, will be helpful, something for you to reflect on and uh, take away for the retreat as we move on through the other precepts and things. And and uh, I'm uh, very uh, excited. I think this is a great reflection because we're not always clear what they are, and this is just you know so much more than just rule-keeping. Uh, this is really a, a life force that we all value and... and seek in our lives. So thank you for your uh, attention and listening.